Well, welcome everyone to this uh, latest uh, episode of the Inner Scientist podcast. It's been a while since the last episode. You know, everything's been crazy in the world, and that includes uh, in, in getting out uh, new episodes. So I'm glad to have um, today's guest, um, Dr. Paula Stefan. Um, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. Instead of um, talking about laboratory-based biomedical research, um, I'm going to talk with Dr. Stefan, a, a very prominent um, labor economist who's done quite a bit of research related to, to biomedicine, but from an economic perspective. Um, so let me give a brief introduction to, to Paula and her, her career. Um, she has a bachelor's degree in economics from Grinnell College, where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa, um, and she um, then moved on to University of Michigan for her doctoral in economics, Ph.D., um, and she's been at Georgia State University for most of her uh, career, where she's currently a professor emerita um, in the Department of Economics at the Andrew Young School of um, policy studies. She is also a research associate um, at a very uh, prestigious economic uh, uh, think tank policy uh, institute called the National Bureau of e Economic Research, which is based in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paula's um, research for, throughout her career has been on the economics of science and how economics impacts the careers of scientists and engineers. And she's um, won several awards, and she's been incredibly active in uh, policy um, uh, based on science and economics. She's uh, an elected fellow to the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. Um, she, in 2012, was named Person of the Year uh, for, uh, from the Science Careers um, uh, division. It's a uh, it's a career division of Science Magazine, um, based on her uh, really uh, w um, pioneering work on helping young scientists as they progress through their careers. She's been on various uh, boards, including the board of reviewing editors at Science Magazine. That was 2012 to 2019. She's been on a national advisory council for. National Institute of General Medical Sciences at NIH. Um, she has uh, contributed to various policy um, uh, platforms, uh, including uh, trends in biosciences um, in the late 90s and more recently uh, uh, kind of next generation advice for biomedical uh, research through NIH. Um, and she's also the author of various um, research articles and, and books, including a 2012 publication called How Economics Shapes Science, um, published through Harvard University Press, and I, I believe that's available through Amazon as well. Um, so Paula's research is really focused on um, kind of taking a classical economic view uh, on science and relationships between incentives and costs and how uh, financial structures impact university-based uh, research. And I think it's a really fascinating topic, uh, fascinating area. And Paula, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Wonderful. Um, so I guess an introductory question would be, uh, how, how did you become interested in this topic, it's it's um, important, and you know, from from what I've looked at, it very very understudied. So, what what's the kind of genesis for your interest in this area? Well, actually, the genesis um, goes back to NSF, to the National Science Foundation. Um, fairly early in my career, I was on a panel at NSF, and a program officer at NSF. This is around 1980. A program officer at NSF said to me, you know, Paula, you're a labor economist and um, you also know some econometrics. And how about you, from an economic point of view, 
thinking about the question of whether science is really a young person's game, as many scientists think. And that came from, I don't know if you're familiar with the quote, but something like, age is the course of fever, um, chill that every scientist, that every physicist must fear. He's better dead than living still when once he's passed his 30th year. And so this concept that science was a young person's game was held some credence. And um, why it was a policy question in the late 70s and early 80s is that the average age of research scientists in the U.S., particularly at universities, was really beginning to age. And that was for the very clear economic reason that although we got, we got this huge increase in funding after Sputnik, so universities grew tremendously and hired lots of new young faculty. But then by the end of the 1960s, and particularly with the Vietnam War, funding for university research really began to decline, and universities quit hiring, and we began to see the average age of faculty really decreasing. So he suggested that, along with um, someone I'd worked with a lot in graduate school, and we'd done a little bit of work thinking about science um, and labor markets, her name was Sharon Levin, the late Sharon Levin at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, that we write a proposal to NSF to think about this. And NSF happened to have the best data around to do this, which is called the Survey of Doctorate Recipients. That's a, a biennial survey. Um, the sampling frame is the Survey of Earned Doctorates. It's longitudinal, and um, it had very good data on U.S. scientists, but it didn't have any productivity measures like publications or um, such things or patent counts. And so we wrote a proposal to match that data to basically what's now the web of science or what at that point was ISI data. And um, we thought, well, gee, if they suggest it, we'll get funds. But, of course, we didn't get the grant. Um, we were told to resubmit, rewrite it. We did. We didn't get the grant. But the third time turned out to be the charm. And NSF also went to the Sloan Foundation and asked for money to help us in because the data matching was very expensive and we couldn't do it because of issues of privacy. So anyhow, that ended up in work I did with Sharon in the 1980s in, whether, in looking at whether science is a young person's game. But it also led me to have um, a lot of knowledge of this database called the Survey of Doctorate Recipients. And we were the very first people outside of the National Science Foundation, the National Research Council, that had gotten access to that data. And it kind of put me and Sharon in an unusual position that committees, so for example, Trends in the Early Careers of Life Scientists, when um, I got involved in that committee, I, one reason I was asked is I was so familiar with this data and I could use this data to interpret some of the trends. And then serving on a committee like that that was chaired by, chaired by Shirley Tillman um, of Princeton, I really began to learn a lot about the biomedical sciences and labor markets in the biomedical sciences. And that kind of led from one thing to another and more and more increased focus on science. And so since at least the mid-1990s, my career's been primarily focused on scientists. So that's kind of the short answer there. I think that if we want to understand the origins of NSF and NIH, it's really helpful to go back to this historic period and to drafting a report I'll talk a little bit about called Science, the Endless Frontier. So if, if we go back, to the late 30s or 1940, there were very, very few research and medical schools in the United States. Um, you may quibble over which they were, but at most there were 15 research-intensive universities and at most 10 research-intensive medical schools. And if you just think about Stanford University's medical school, it's a great case in point. I mean, Stanford was in Palo Alto, but the medical school was in downtown San Francisco. It had 
virtually no connection with the main campus, and all of the classes pretty much were taught by clinicians, and many of them were practicing physicians in San Francisco who were part-time. And the U.S. really was producing very, very few PhDs. Um, around 1940, there were something like 1,600 PhDs awarded in the United States, and that's in all fields. And that's probably about 5% of the number of PhDs who are produced today. And 10 institutions were producing two-thirds of all of those PhDs. So there were very, very few PhDs out there. And I think from a research perspective, it's very interesting to know that faculty who were doing research at universities, and not that many were, they were not getting money from the federal government. There was hardly any federal money coming in. But the sources for support were primarily endowments and private foundations, such as the Rockefeller Foundation, and then just donations that people made. There were, as I say, there was just, there was very, very little government money, and to the extent if there was government money, it was a contract for a specific piece of research, often for defense, and it wasn't a grant that you would propose. Um, my estimates are that at most universities were doing about or getting about 1% of the total funding universities are getting today for research or that they were spending about 1% of what they're spending today. So you can see very, very, very small. So then we move forward. We have World War II totally interrupted what was going on in science in the United States. Um, PhD production was cut by like two-thirds during this period. And at the end of the war, science found itself in a very, very strong position in terms of public um, opinion. As some say, science emerged triumphant from World War II. It had delivered radar. It had delivered the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Penicillin made a huge difference in treating soldiers during the war. And it's fair to say that this really made a big impression on the public. Um, I love a quote by Frederick Stone, who was a person at the National Institute of Health, and during this period it was the National Institute of Health. And he said, from the end of the war on, science was spelled with a capital S and research with a capital R. So probably nobody understood this better than FDR's science advisor. So FDR's science advisor was an engineer from MIT named Vannevar Bush. And he had worked very closely with President Roosevelt during the war. He, Roosevelt had a lot of confidence in him. And as soon as the war was over, Bush went to Roosevelt and he encouraged him to ask him to write a report about the role that the federal government could play in funding research, and particularly in funding research at universities. And it's even said that Bush wrote the letter and put Roosevelt's name on it and then went to see Roosevelt and said, here, won't you sign this and ask me to do this? So he, um, he got the letter. And he started, a, he, he brought together a group of graduate students and young economists and scientists to work on this report. Just from an economic perspective, it's fun that one of the graduate students working on the report was Paul Samuelson, who was an early Nobel laureate in economics. Huh. Um, and this report really was published in 46, and it's called Science, the Endless Frontier. It's really easy to find on the web, and um, listeners might want to go look at it. It's still very relevant for today and has some interesting appendices. And this report set out the role for federal government in supporting research and training. I'm just curious, and, sorry to uh -huh. interrupt, but Vannevar sure. Bush, is he uh, related to the, you know, the 
Bush family and, and politics these days, or is that just a common last name? I think it's just a common last name, okay? There's, I, d I don't believe there's any direct connection at all. Indeed, I'm quite sure there's no direct connection at all. Um, so this report set out the role for federal government to support research and also training. And Bush thought that we needed kind of two arms of the federal government or two kinds of foundations to support research. He looked to the NIH, um, which was already in existence. You know, the origins of the NIH go back to the 19th century. Right, yeah. Um, um, and it became the National Institutes, Institutes rather than Institute of Health, I think around 1948 when, um, when cardiology was put in as a program. But anyhow, NIH already existed, but he needed to create a foundation for the natural sciences and engineering. So he proposed something to be like the National Science Foundation. Um, and the objective was that the federal government needed to promote basic research. And I think it's important, and as an economist, I think it's important to stress that Bush really put a lot of emphasis on the need to do basic research at universities. And the federal government could do that by providing funds. And I think this is pretty interesting. He said that universities were the right place because they were least under pressure for immediate tangible results. Now, I'm sure there are a number of your listeners out there who know the pressure to get results now, but... Bush thought that there was the least pressure in academe. Did he actually then, use the term basic research, or was that more yes, of a commonplace term if we, at that time? If we go back and look, I'm pretty sure you can find the word basic research in the report, okay? Yeah. All right, and he talks about the need for universities to do this research to fuel um, what can be done in industry. He very much understood what economists would call the idea of spillovers, you know, that something's learned in one place and a new idea is developed and other agencies and particularly the private sector can take advantage of this. And he was worried that there wasn't enough fundamental. He may have used the word fundamental research, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I need to go. I haven't read the report now for about five years, all right? But he was very aware of this concept of spillovers. And... He thought that we needed to have a strong research base in this country that didn't have to have immediate results, as he thought industry was pretty focused on immediate results. And then he also really was concerned that we didn't have enough research capacity in the United States. He was very um, struck by how few research institutions there were and how few Ph.D. granting institutions there were. So he really wanted to build up departments, and he was very concerned at the lack of strength of U.S. medical schools in terms of research. You can find that discussed in the report. Um, and with regard to training, he was really worried. I mean, the number of new PhDs really declined during the war, and he saw a huge deficit. If we were going to spend money on research, we needed to have new people doing some of this research. So he put a lot of emphasis on supporting graduate students on fellowships and undergraduates on scholarships. And I think from a, a labor economist point of view, it's really interesting that, you know, he wanted to, he argued for these two activities at universities and medical schools, research and training. But he never saw, while he saw that, that you had to do research to train people, he never at all discusses the idea that trainees will be supported off of grants. He sees the funding sources as being totally separate. And, of course, that's something that's just changed incredibly over time. I think it's also interesting that Bush did not envision a huge number, of, a huge amount of money. I mean, he thought that um, if we put $20 million a year into medical research, that would be enough. And that's about 1% of what we fund today. And he thought he would put about $50 million into the natural sciences 
and that's about 10% of what we fund today. And I think if you go back and read the report, one of the things is he really didn't understand how once you began feeding this model, how how much it would take on a life of its own and everyone would want um, more <laughs> resources. Right. So um, do you think it would be interesting to talk about just the way in which research was funded and what NIH did in its early days? And yeah, NSA? absolutely. It's fascinating. Okay. Okay, well, um, so I think it's really fascinating that in the early days, NIH um, was in the business of building capacity. I, um, I read some history that both from NIH and from books published in the 1950s about the early days of NIH, and I think it's really interesting that in many ways during this period, NIH could be thought of as being in missionary mode. Um, Fred Stone, who later became director of NIGMS, said about 1950 that it wasn't anything to travel 200,000 miles a year, and this is, by the way, by car, to recruit proposals. So NIH thought of itself as having to go out and get people to write proposals. And, and, of course, part of this was that they wanted to get proposals not just from these top ten universities and top five medical schools, but they wanted to, to build the base somewhat. Um, grants were peer-reviewed. Success rates in these early days were about 65%, you know, two out of three. Um Grants were very, very small in today's dollars. They were about $100,000, but they were only for one year. Indirect was 8%, and these grants um, were heavily concentrated at a, number, at a small number of institutions. The top 50 institutions received 75%, and the top 10 got, got something close to um, 40%. And there was such an adverse reaction to all the reports people had to write during World War II that um, reporting requirements were virtually um, non-existent, very minimal. And I think it's interesting that NIH during this period put most of its emphasis on funding facilities, equipment, and that included computers. They had a big role in starting to try to computerize biomedical research. And there was virtually no funding for salaries at that point. Um, at this period of time, NIH thought of themselves as having a shortage of talent to getting research done. Um, there's a historical report written of the first years of NIH by a woman named Mary Munder, and she wrote this in 1960. And reflecting on the first 12 years of NIH, she said from the beginning of the extramural research grants program, the lack of a sufficient number of qualified research investigators was a continuing bottleneck. In terms of how graduate students were supported, initially you used to, if you were a graduate student, you made an application to NIH for a fellowship and NIH reviewed it in-house, but quickly that became to be too much of a burden and training grants were created. Hmm. Um, and so training grants date back a very long way, um, and they did continue to review people supported on postdoctoral study fellowships. Now, NSF is somewhat different. It got off to a later start. There was a big fight in Congress about whether the social sciences would be included and how um, certain states would be treated. And NSF um, didn't get its um, full funding until I think it's 1953. But the process was pretty similar. Um, grant applications were peer-reviewed. Success rates was 50 to 60 percent. And in cases of what look like renewals, although they're not called renewals at NSF, um, they were over 86 percent. Huge success rates, all right? Grants were just about the same size as at NIH. Indirect at NSF was 15%, 8% at NIH. 
And the funds were even more heavily concentrated. About half of them went to 10 universities. NSF gave money for for equipment, facilities, but they also, from the beginning, supported summer salary. And pretty quickly, universities began to figure out how to move money around (coughs) from summer money to support during the year. Hmm. And I should say that from the beginning, NSF had a training department. So this NSF fellowships have been in existence for both doctoral study and postdoctoral study basically ever since the beginning of NSF. But NSF also allowed um, faculty to support GRAs on their grants. During this so, time, were would you say most researchers, university-based researchers, were paid based on the academic year? So, you know, essentially a nine-month oh, salary? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, you know, it's a nine-month salary, and these, and particularly NIH and NSF, were thinking of how they could support, give faculty summer money support. Um, you're absolutely right. What What did people do then if they didn't have a grant? They just, you know, did, weren't paid over the summer? Did they? Or they taught summer school? Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, I mean, many, many. And well, first of all, I think it's important to realize that um, the majority, even though they have these high success rates. The majority of faculty were not getting funding and were not doing research that much. So even I went back, and I couldn't find it this morning, but I went back to some data NSF has published, and I think if you go to 1973, you'll find that something like only 25% of tenure-track faculty say they're doing research um, or that they're in a research position, which is pretty low compared to today. So they were they were teachers basically. They, well, you did some research, but your job was to teach. And um my institution when I came here, I was on a, to Georgia State, I was a, it was a 9-month contract, but it was considered that faculty might not be able to budget well. And so we were paid over 12 months, our nine-month salary. <laughs> and 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 I think that Georgia was the only institution in the country that had such a policy. You could still get money from teaching in the summer, and there was a small grants program. I got small grants every summer for 10% of my salary or something. But um, it was it was. Uh, and you could get grants to buy out your time during the year. But people were generally perceived of as being teaching faculty. I think that's definitely true. And I think that was fairly true among most medical schools at that time. But, and here's the rub, universities adjusted pretty quickly, you know, to the fact that there were these funding opportunities for faculty and they very, very quickly um, figured out that they needed to get people to submit more grants, and they began lobbying and for getting increases in indirect rates and increasing the number of graduate students and really lobbying heavily for requesting salary support on grants. Um, and actually, you know NSF has a has a has a uh, support for biomedical research or and it supported work in the in biology in the 50s and 60s but a lot of researchers wanted to switch to NIH grants because NIH began more friendly became more friendly to supporting people during the academic year than NSF or that's what's reported okay hmm. and of course This big push by universities was really helped by the fact of the launching of Sputnik and the fact that the U.S. government, in response to the launching of Sputnik, increased funding for science dramatically in all fields. I mean, it wasn't just in physics or in engineering, but the biomedical sciences benefited considerably. So we had this huge increase in funding during that period, and um, we got a large increase in the number of of graduate students being supported. 
So this was and, late, uh, late 60s, early 70s? This is, late, this is well, beginning in, you know, it's 1957, oh. and the friending started into the system by 1958-59, and you just saw a huge increase in the number of Ph.D. programs during the 60s and the number of graduate students during the 60s and the number of people um, getting salary support. So, I mean, it's very hard to get some of this data, but one piece of data is that by the late 60s, 68 to 69, almost half of medical school faculty received some salary support from the federal government. And by 1960, NSF said, okay, salaries can be charged off grants. It doesn't just have to be summer. Um, support, and you don't have to creatively move the money around. You can ask for that. And in a paper I wrote for the National Bureau of Economic Research, I I argued that the 1960s, they, the tables really turned. That before 1960, NIH and NSF were kind of in missionary mode out there pushing universities to submit grants. And to try to increase their training capacity. And after that, the roles were completely reversed, and universities began to push the federal government for funds and salaries for new hires and increased indirect and increased funding for research. And there's the standing committee called the President's Scientific Advisory Committee, PSAC, and they issued a report in 1960 that, made a case that's really familiar to lots of us today. I mean, they argued that agencies had to increase indirect, that we needed more funds for federal for research from the federal government. But they also argued that the federal government should send directly money to universities for positions, for hires. And this should be a, firm, a permanent flow of funds from the federal government to universities. And that really... Um, didn't go anywhere, and that has never gone anywhere. While this argument of more money and different indirect rules continues to go on, I mean, the National Research Council just issued a report a few years ago making many of the same arguments. And you so, know, in, indirect costs these days are anywhere from you know 50 percent upwards to almost a hundred percent at some well over a hundred percent for over. some places wow uh, right. based on so. your on, on your research do you know how indirects are spent in general I mean do you what well that's what, one of what's the, the money used for <laughs> that's a great question and I it's very very hard to track um, what they're used for but um, you know, some of them are used as incentives. So on some universities, part of the indirect goes right back to the principal investigator. But that's true at a number of universities that a portion goes to the faculty member or the faculty member's department to be used in discretionary ways. Um, in other words, to help support them or graduate students or postdocs or buy equipment. Um, some in some places goes directly to the college unit the person's in in the university. I think it's a source of a lot of startup packages comes out of indirect. Hmm. And then, I mean, because startup packages are very expensive and it's very hard to exactly track where the money comes from for startup. And, of course, money can be moved around fairly easily at universities in some ways. Um, I think universities love to say that indirect, that every grant costs them money. I don't know if you're told that, but lots of places faculty are told that getting a grant really costs the university something. On the other hand, the university seems extremely happy for the faculty to get the grant. Um, so... The accounting of this is, is very hard to figure out, and I don't think there's any good tracking consistently about where it goes. But we do know that universities are paying increasing percent of research that's actually conducted at the university, and one of the assumptions is that part of that comes out of indirect. There's also a researcher at Cornell, Ron Ehrenberg, that's shown a pretty convincing argument 
that part of it comes out of increased tuition for students. So but I don't the, know. But they're not required to, you know, give a full accounting of how those funds no. are spent? No. What you're, what, you're, what you're required to do is to be audited for how you compute your indirect rate. You know, for what you consider to be the cost that the university's getting reimbursed for. Mm. And that's the part that goes through audit. Mm -hmm. And so every university has a different indirect rate. It has to, it has to meet a government audit standard. And I, I assume with, with the growth of research administration that some of those indirects probably support those, those efforts. One you know. would think that's a likely hypothesis, right? Do you know if there's a correlation between indirect rates and the size of the research administration staff? That's probably a tough uh, ca uh, calculation. Well, I haven't seen any research that shows that. And I, I don't know. I might, I think you might find, well, it might not be just the rate, but the amount of indirect coming in. It, I mean, it's a fascinating question. Um, I'm afraid I can't give you a perfect answer to it. Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, it's it's, it's something, it's a question a lot of people ask. I, I tell new faculty members who come in, you know, they get a, a, a generous startup package. And right. they... You know, in some in some cases, they're made to feel a little guilty for the amount of money they've been given. But I tell people, you know, if in five years, you know, you've spent your startup package, but you've received two NIH R01 grants at that time, that those indirect costs have essentially covered your startup package almost. Um, and you know, so it's it's interesting to hear that. And I had never really thought about this, that indirects were probably being funneled towards new new recruitment and startups, well, probably, which I think is a good way to spend the money, actually. Well, I think part of them are, you know, and I really do think this varies considerably at universities quite a bit. I, I don't think there's one answer for every university. But startup packages are quite large, and they're getting bigger and bigger. And indeed, I mean, when... You know, a lot of people think that's why they're so, why hiring at universities has slowed down so much is because of the large startup packages that are required. Right. Although we don't have really good evidence. And I have to say, I worked very hard to collect good data on startup packages, and most universities do not want to share what their startup packages are. It's like trade secrets. <laughs> Well, that's very competitive, too. Yes, <laughs> it's very competitive. I mean, it's it, it's even more competitive than salaries in some ways. So yeah. I think I think that's really interesting. So, Do, um, so I just wanted to ask one more question. During this, you know, rapid growth and and research expansion, you know, and what which was essentially a, a response to competition with the Soviet Union. When when did the first uh, soft money positions start to be um, uh, formed. Was that during this growth period or after, or, or do you know? Well, it's it's incredibly hard to get data on soft money positions. It's somewhat easier to get data on soft money positions at medical schools um, because the AAMC has collected some data in the past, and NIH has a little bit of data, but very little data. But it's definitely true that by the by the 1980s, we definitely began seeing um, a number of soft money positions. Um, it's just there's no survey that historically asks about soft money positions. You can begin to get a little bit of information from the survey of doctorate recipients. But that data doesn't really begin to show much. Um, we don't have any data except beginning in the 70s from that. So I can't fully answer that question, but I can also say that soft money positions um, grew much more quickly at medical schools, I believe, than in non-medical schools. Mm -hmm. and, and the rationale for... Going for salary off extramural grants, 
going beyond that traditional summer amount, you know, three months roughly. The rationale for for expanding that to, you know, 40%, 50%, up up to 100% coverage was for, from the universities. That rationale was to, to give the researchers more time to devote give the faculty more time to devote to research or what what were oh, their explanations think, for you know expanding and that I, I think well i think the rationale the underlying rationale has really been that reputation is and ranking of universities is incredibly important to universities and that the amount of federal funds that a university gets a medical school gets um, is one of the key variables that defines the reputation of a university. So if, and, and so if you can get faculty in soft money positions that you don't have to pay for and they bring in grants, you get more federal funding and you've also kind of exported the risk to the faculty member because if they don't get the grant, they're not going to get paid. So the university hasn't made a huge financial commitment. Now, I'm not saying that it started out that way, but I think it's definitely evolved into that. I mean, the gold standard for universities in terms of reputation is to become a member of the AAU, you know, the American Association of Universities. Well, one of the major criteria for membership in the AAU is the amount of federal funding you get, and it's not federal funding from any agency. Agriculture doesn't count nearly as much. It's particularly funding from NIH and NSF. And so that is a very, very strong incentive. And universities are also ranked on the number of doctoral degrees they award. Um, More is better. And so all of those things encourage this kind of system, I would say. So I don't know. I'm not a historian of medical schools, and I haven't gone back and looked, but I do think you would have found people doing some research and teaching some early on who were not supported on federal grants. But people doing research at medical schools now, particularly um, in basic positions, are almost all being supported somewhat on soft money positions. Um, Let me see if I can find, I had some data here that, um, that if I can find it, um, that about the number of soft money positions. Yeah, I mean, one piece of evidence is that faculty salaries at medical school often almost entirely are covered by grants. 35% of medical school tenure is accompanied by no salary for basic medical faculty, and in 52% tenures accompanied by a specific financial guarantee, but only one out of eight of the 52% is for total salary. So this has really become the mode for medical schools. Um, An AAMC 2009 report found that faculty with external research support got over a third of their total salary from grants, and for PhDs, it was 50%. For MDs, it was much lower. So I don't know. That may put it in some perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. And I think one of the things that's surprising is, or maybe not surprising, is NIH knows that the bulk of their budget is going for um, salaries and for labor services, and um, they think that 50% of it goes directly to faculty, but they cannot tell you what percent of those are in tenured versus soft money positions, unfortunately. I've sp- this yeah. is a topic that's talked about a lot. You know, every committee I've served on, we always say we need to know what percent of people are in soft money positions and nobody can come up with a number, okay? Yeah, well, I think exactly. when, when, when someone, when a faculty member submits an, a grant application to NIH, I don't even think that stipulation is required. I mean, you, No, you, I don't think so. It's yeah. not part, 
I don't think you can tell from NIH's data. And if you could, it certainly is not coded. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to specify the percent effort you'll devote to that grant. Right. But that doesn't necessarily correlate with percent salary either. No, and, no, no, and absolutely. It, and it doesn't. Well, of course. And there's no, there's no um, requirement for detailing what percent salary you're required to cover from extramural funds. Um, I think That's all right. those all those fill in the blanks would be important for you know determining what percent um, most grants are dedicated to salary. I, I would guess it's a fairly significant amount, probably over. Oh 50%. no, it's a, it's a very large percent. It's extremely large percent. I mean, we know from AAMC data, but we also know you know from just um, looking at the position titles people hold. And then if you look at, like, from the survey of doctorate recipients, if you look at that data, like, during the NIH doubling, you can tell that the big increase came in non-tenure track hires. And I think of non-tenure track hires as the same thing as soft money positions. Yeah, that's interesting. And even a tenure track soft money position doesn't really the the tenure component doesn't really mean much if you lose. Well, that's right. You I mean, grants, you, know, you know, if tenure if tenure doesn't if tenure doesn't mean salary guarantee, it's 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 a strange concept in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and when I think about it more, um, you know. People who pay 100% salary from grants are essentially they're kind of, in some ways, paying the university to work there. Oh <laughs> you know, no, that's, that sounds strange. Um, no, 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 but, no. Well, you know, I've I've given several interviews when I say that universities have, in many ways, become high-end shopping malls. I don't know whether you've read that I've said this somewhere, but. Um, and, and this, you know, this is obviously high-end shopping malls before COVID-19, but that they've really gone into the business of building state-of-the-art facilities and a reputation that attracts good students, good faculty, and resources. And then they basically turn around and they lease these high-end facilities to faculty in the form of indirect cost on grants and the buyout of salary. Right. And, and you know, faculty get a startup package when hired to get their space in the mall fixed up and to pay. But in the end, faculty in some sense pay for the opportunity of working at the university by indirect and, um, and bringing in their own funding. And then they staff the labs with graduate students and postdocs that are paid off their grants primarily. So... In, in many ways, um, this is a totally different model than we initially had 60 or 70 years ago. And I think it added to it, at least in the biomedical sciences, is the doubling. We didn't talk about the doubling. No, please, please go into that. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Well, I think that, um, you know, anybody, <laughs> anybody who thinks that just – Increasing NIH's budget solves all problems. You should go back and study the doubling. Because by the end of the doubling, success rates were no higher than they had been before, and there was a lot of increased stress on the system. And one of the things that happened during the doubling is, you know, NIH kept saying repeatedly, but do not get used to these increases. The doubling is going to take place over five years. And after that, it's going to go on hold. But, of course, it's very hard to believe that. And almost all medical schools and most universities that were kind of in the top to mid-tier went on a huge building binge. So they put up only research facilities, um, and they thought, you know, that this would be a very, very good way to attract more resources and to attract better faculty. I mean, if you were already at the top, you had to do it to stay at the top. 
if you were in a middle-level position, you thought you could move to the top. And so we just got this huge increase in research capacity. NSF collects pretty good data on the amount of lab space that's being built by field. And it just grew tremendously in the biomedical sciences compared to all the other fields. And that doubling, just to interrupt really quick, that doubling happened, for those who aren't aware, early 1990s, roughly? No, from the late 90s to 2002. Okay, so, yeah, right, right. uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and it was ended by 2003. So, you know, I think that this overbuilding has put, put also, you got all the space and you've got to fill it, and so soft money positions become, in many ways, even more attractive if you've if you've got that. And um, that's another thing. And I think it's also important to realize that a lot of these buildings were often built with debt. So a lot of universities um, and university systems could borrow to put up buildings. And, you know, that debt was brought on board before the Great Recession or what we thought of as the Great Recession. Now we're going to be in a Great Depression, I fear. But that that um, that debt created some problems for universities. And I think it's still this, this huge building binge has been a problem for some universities over time also. And so I think that was another pressure for hiring more soft money people. I see. Um, so that, that debt that you mentioned is mostly at the state level, or is that from federal it depends. as well? It depends on if it's a private university or a public university and how the university is governed. So I think it varies a considerable amount. And it's it's hard to get good numbers on it. I know that when I was on um, NIGMS, um, and we were funding the Protein Structure Initiative, we used to say, no crystal, no grant. You know, you can't get your funding unless you have very, very strong preliminary data. And that, in many ways, discourages risk-taking. And this um, goes right back to the idea of spillovers. I mean, if we really think that we're funding university research so that we'll do some really creative research that can be picked up on by people outside of the universe, university and have a big impact down the road, we need to think about funding research that's really path-breaking in some sense. And there's considerable concern, I think, that we're doing less and less of that. And that's something I think we should be really worried about and Soft money positions, I think, really tie right into this. Um, you know, Stephen um, Quake, the, um, the biomedical biophysicist at Stanford, um, talks about soft money positions. People are in a funding or famine position. And if, if that's the way you're getting your support, you have to be very careful of knowing that your grant's going to find something so you can get the next grant, et cetera. So I think that's one of the unintended consequences. I also think that we've, in some sense, put almost all of our eggs in the university research basket. I mean, we've decided that's where research is going to be done in the United States, and I'm a fan of that, and I think there's much to say for that. But it's not necessarily the only way in which one can do research. And I think it would benefit us from a policy perspective to think about other models where you're not all connected in to um, a university environment and in which you spend a lot of your effort um, in training students. I mean, we definitely, definitely need research for training people, but what's happened in the United States today with the way in which universities function in the shopping mall model is these labs are staffed by postdocs and graduate students, and you know, if you think about it, um, Vannevar Bush's idea was that we need to support graduate students and postdocs 
because we have a deficit in people who can do research. So we need to supply the future. But I think most of our training now is totally focused on we need people in the lab to get the research done now. So I, I just wanted to ask a question about kind of where we are currently. I was reading something over the weekend about how major crises like the one we're in now um, accelerate change, but and they basically accelerate change that's already begun. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about how federal funding is going to be impacted in the future by um, the pandemic. Um, how do you think uh, this will affect uh, academic research? And, you know, I know there's no crystal ball to look into, but based on the history, what, what, how do you think this current uh, crisis, you know, which is, has a huge financial component, is going to impact uh, the, the research realm? Well, it's a, you know, it's a really tough question, but I, I do think that it's important to think about where research funding has come from for universities historically. And right now, most funding has come from government, and we've been talking about that. It's also come from donors and private philanthropy and industry, but from universities themselves. And I think it's important to stress that. We talked about that with indirect. And the proportion of research that universities have been paying for themselves has grown over time. So when we think about how this is going to affect research in universities, I think that's important to notice because a lot of universities right now are on very shaky grounds. Their revenue sources are really threatened. Um, tuition revenues are threatened. I mean, people may not come back next year. Um, the new model may be online classes that ha has been, um, has really taken off right now. And a lot of universities have made a great deal of revenue out of master's programs for international students. And international students are definitely, I don't think, will be here in the fall. And um, I think we'll see a big cut in that. And that's been a cash cow for a lot of universities. And, of course, hospital revenues have really declined, right? So I think all of those say that universities are going to find themselves in real financial stress going forward. And then, you know, we don't know what this will do for donors. Maybe donors will really step up to the plate, but a lot of people, very wealthy people, have seen their net worth really decline. And then for public universities, states, governments are in horrible shape right now. So I think there'll be major, major cuts. I mean, I, the only system I know a lot about right now is the Georgia system, but everybody's asking to take a 14% cut, and that includes the universities. So I think that we're going to see a lot of university programs having a hard time coming forward here. Now, will the Fed, what's going to happen to the federal support? You know, we really saw, I mean, you know, right after this, we saw an increase for NIH funding from Congress, but it wasn't that big. It's only like 3 to 4% increase. And we don't know whether Congress will come forward with a much bigger package. Um, we do know that Congress did that um, with the American Recovery Act after the Great Recession, but funding became quite flat right after that. So it's hard to know. I think one of the big questions here is the extent to which science emerges triumphant <laughs> from COVID-19. You know, if, um, and this may seem a bit cynical, but if, if we get treatments fast, if we get a vaccine fast, I think that science will really have a special place in the hearts of funders. And if not, I just think it may be one more um, voice out there looking for federal support. And, and then, you know, we have this whole issue that a lot of labs, like we were talking about your lab, 
um, had to close. So we lost a lot of research time and we've had to euthanize a lot of lab animals. And there are a lot of delays in publishing, delays in getting resubmissions back because people can't go back to their lab to redo the data. So I just think there's going to be a lag in terms of research coming out of universities. And then the labor market, I fear, is going to be terribly, terribly soft and going to have a huge um, impact on people in Ph.D. programs finishing up and in postdocs. Um, most universities, as far as I can tell, have totally quit um, interviewing people for positions and have put those positions on hold. Um, I think it's going to be a buyer's market, not only in terms of compensation, but also in terms of the way in which people are hired. And I think that may go right back to soft money positions, that soft money positions or non-tenure track positions or tenure track positions that don't really involve a financial commitment may increase as a result of this. So those are just some thoughts. I could be totally wrong. This is complete speculation at this point, but I think there are things to look for. Well, of course, it's going to be, in one sense, it's a buyer's market because you have so many people who will be looking for positions. And already, I mean, you know, a very, very small percent of people um, 12 years after they get their Ph.D. in the biomedical sciences have a tenure-track faculty position now, something like only 12%. So it's been a pretty buyer's market for quite a while. But I think there are going to be fewer and fewer tenure-track positions and even um, soft money positions, which will mean universities have a higher, have more ability in naming the terms. Of course, there may be fewer universities out there shopping for new hires also, but it just seems to me that it makes um, soft money positions much more appealing. And when I say soft money, I just mean that you get a position, but you don't have a salary guarantee. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think COVID has really made people more and more appreciative of of what a risky situation universities are in, in a way, right? Because, I mean, who would have dreamed that this could happen to the finances of universities that thought at least they had tuition and hospital revenue, et cetera, to look to? And anything you can do to outsource risk is going to be very appealing after the end of this, if, if when we get to the end of this road. Right. and. I think soft money positions or decoupling salary from tenure, let's just say it that way, mm-hmm. are a very appealing way for universities to decouple um, themselves from risk. Yeah, and, and as an economist, you, you view this as, a, as the beginning of not a recession but a depression. Kind oh, of. I think that's probably – I mean, lots of people are using – I'm not a macroeconomist, and – I don't want to claim to be one, but lots of my of the macro world is talking about a depression. And it's clearly not going to all be over in September or October or November. I mean, you know, Powell just yesterday said that he thought we wouldn't come out of this until the end of 2021. That's quite a ways off. Wow. Yeah, that's... So it's time to hunker down and, 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 you know, focus on short-term goals and uh, hope for the best in the long term. Or maybe it's time to dream up some really creative research when one... Yeah, there you go. (laughs) When one has the time. I mean, maybe. You know, it's just like the whole... The whole way in which we're doing research suddenly got changed, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we'll see. I mean, maybe people have new ideas. It's just very hard to know um, because we just haven't had anything like this that one can think of, at least in the last 60 to 80 years in universities. Yeah, and it's, it's, 
your the idea about thinking differently, I, I think, is a good one, and, and that's actually how I found out about your work. I mean, I've been working at home, spending a lot of time writing papers and grants and other things, but, you know, I also ask questions, you know, what, how are indirect costs spent? Um, why does, why do most of my colleagues, including myself, have to fund a significant portion of their salary from extramural grants. And, you know, just through some simple Google searches, I found about your work. And it wasn't, I, I say simple, but it, it actually involved some time just because this area is so understudied. Um, I think, it was, it I think that's true. It's hard to find some details. So I, it, I was, it was great to find out about your work. I think it's very important. Well, it has been, it this area is attracting more and more people to do work in. And um, one thing that's been a lot of, that's been interesting and, and fun from my point of view is that the Sloan Foundation has funded um, a grant at the National Bureau of Economic Research and with a co-principal investigator, Reinhilde Villiger, who's in at KU Leuven in Belgium. We bring together a group of people every summer to study the science of science funding and to think about it. And one of the things is we bring people both from the foundation world and the university world and economists who look at these issues together. Unfortunately, this summer our meeting will be all virtual, as all of NBE, our summer institute, will be. But it's fun to begin talking about a lot of these issues with a kind of a group pulled across different groups. Yeah, and just to to make it... uh you know, to make this knowledge more openly available. Right. I know a lot right. of people have similar questions, and when it's so hard to, to find some details, you you know, you tend to just give up and go back to what you were doing. But I've really enjoyed the conversation today, and I think a lot of listeners in U.S. academic uh, institutions and around the world, hopefully, will find this, um, you know, interesting and informative and, and you know, in, enjoyable to, to learn about some of these details that impact our careers on a, on a regular basis but aren't really discussed very openly. So I really like to thank you for your time and, and for all the work you've done. It's been, it's been really nice talking to you. Well, it's been nice talking to you too, and I have, you have a good day and good luck in reopening your lab. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Stay healthy, stay sane, and hope, hopefully things will be back to normal fairly soon. Okay. The okay. same to you. Bye. Bye.